Welcome to the first edition of the MMA DFS show. Uh, thanks to my guy Sal Vetri for bringing me on to tackle this market for you guys. And uh, shout out to everybody that's been showing your boy support since the announcement. I am your host, if you guys don't already know, uh, Manpreet, aka MMA Lock of the Night, and your boy on Twitter at MMA LOTN. But yeah, um, my guy Sal brought me in to give you guys all the goods on the MMA stuff, and we. Couldn't have started it off with a better card uh, with UFC 257 headlined by Conor McGregor and Dustin Poirier. This is actually the rematch from a fight that took place way back in 2013. And obviously, both fighters have made tons of changes in that amount of time. And I can't wait to see how this fight plays out. But I am here to give you guys the best betting and DFS tips uh, for this upcoming card to help you guys get as much cash as possible out of this. Uh, first and foremost, like I said, I just want to plug my Twitter. It's at MMALOTN. You guys can find me on the IG as well, at MMALOTN. And then obviously my own YouTube channel where I drop my own podcast, specifically focused on uh, the betting side of things, not so much the DFS. All the DFS stuff is going to drop on this channel. Thanks to, again to my guy, Salvetri. Uh, lastly, I also want to plug my Patreon. Uh, again, from a betting perspective, I drop all of my stuff on there. Uh, for five bucks a month, you guys are getting early access to all my breakdowns before they actually come out to the public. You guys get my picks as well, too. A solid Discord channel. Shout out to all the guys on my Discord channel as well, too. Uh, as well as a best bets and props article that I dropped the day before the fights, pretty much outlining the best props and bets for every single fight on the card. And again, it's only five bucks a month. We already got 240 people on it. So that should tell you how much value we're getting out of this damn thing. All right. Let's keep this boat moving along. And last, next thing before we do, before I actually get into the to the uh, to the fights here, is I want to drop a shout out to our sponsor, Monkey Knife Fight. So these guys are kind of new around the block, and I'm really looking forward to getting into it myself. Uh, but they are pretty much a player prop site where you just pretty much pick uh, an over under for UFC specifically. It seems to be significant strikes, so they give you a number, and you have to pick whether it's over and under, and you got to pick at least two of them. And if you get them both right, you pretty much two point five times your money. And and then there are obviously other games in there that help you three times, four times, five times your money the deeper you want to get into it. Uh, it's either significant strikes or fantasy points for the UFC. So it's a solid uh, game, solid platform. I like their approach as well too. It's just a spin on the DFS world. Uh, again, the promo code is going to be UFC50. The link will be in the description below. So shout out again, once again, to uh, to our guys at Monkey Knife Fight. You guys will also get a free money bonus. They'll match your... They'll match your initial deposit 100% up to 50 bucks. So you drop 25 bucks, they'll match that 25 bucks. Then you got 50 bucks to start with. You want to go the whole way, you want to go full hog, you drop 50 bucks, they match your 50 bucks, and you get 100 bucks to start off your uh, to start off your monkey knife fight journey. So shout out to the shout out to those guys over there. Great concept that they have, and I can't wait to get into it myself. Speaking of me getting into it myself, I will drop my uh, little monkey knife fight plays and props for you guys at the end of this episode. So if you guys stick around, I'll give you guys a little bit of tip or at least a couple tips uh, in terms of how you should be approaching your first attempt at this monkey knife fight game. All right, without further ado, let's get into the card here. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to break down every single fight on a fight to fight basis. And then at the end of, uh, of the episode, I will give you guys my lock of the night uh, in terms of who I think should be a lock on pretty much the majority of your uh, your lineups, a dog of the night, a guy that I think that is, uh, you know, not as expensive as the favorites, but deserves to be on your lineups as well, as I believe he'll pull off the upset. Uh, I'll give you a fate of the night as well, somebody who's priced very high that I don't believe will be able to produce the numbers to justify that price tag. And then I'll give you a, a sneaky play of the night as well too. Somebody that I think that, that is an underdog, obviously, not a dog dog of the night play, but somebody that is an underdog that I think will be overlooked highly because of the level of opposition they're going up to. And then lastly, to cap it off, I'll give you guys my favorite play of the night from each salary range. So from the 6,000s to the 7,000s to the 8,000s to the 9,000s, I'll give you guys my best spot on each uh, for each uh, range there. All right, let's get into the damn thing. We're starting off the f with the first fight of the night, which is Amir Albazi versus Zalgas Zhumagulov. And uh, in terms of price range, we're talking about Zalgas coming in at the 8,300 range with uh, Albazi coming in at that 7,900 range. Now, I think that the person that's going to be scoring the most, most points here will be Amir Albazi as he comes into this game uh, with a little bit more of a uh, grappling game plan. 
likes to go out there, likes to take his opponents down, and seeks the submission more often than not. And uh, I know with this new scoring system that they're trying to bring in the, the control time, which I think is going to be huge for a lot of grapplers and wrestlers. And we have a couple of these, especially priced at underdog uh, salaries and odds, that I think people should be able to take heavy advantage of. And I think Amir Al-Bazi definitely leads that charge here. As uh, given his last couple of fights, not to mention his Malcolm Gordon UFC debut, where he's able to pull off a first-round submission victory, um, he goes out there and he looks for the takedown more often than not. And here, he's matched up a guy against a guy in Zyalgas, Zumagulov, who mainly is a striker, a very efficient striker, uh, but does give ta- give up takedowns. So I think that we'll actually see the underdog outscore the, the favorite here uh, in terms of points. And I think that he will eventually go on to win a decision victory. The one thing I will give to Zalgas Zumagulov, though, is he is quite durable. Uh, he has decent uh, uh, submission defense as well, too. And he does a good job of getting back to his feet. However... A guy that continuously gets back to his feet means that he's got to get taken down once again, and we'll get some more points for those takedowns. So I do like um, I do like Amir here, Amir here as the dog, as well as uh, being at the price that he currently is. I think we're getting some solid value if you guys take him again. Expect some takedowns, uh, decent striking as well too. That's something that he's working on, but I do think that uh, his takedowns will add up, and I wouldn't be surprised if we do end up getting a submission victory out of him too. But I will be going with the decision side here, uh, but expect to get some control time and some takedowns out of my guy. Uh, Amir Albazi. All right, speaking of takedowns, let's get into the next fight. We got Nick Lentz versus um, uh, Movzar Evluev. Uh, if you guys have been following me for a while, I'm sure most of you uh, are new viewers and don't really know my style and who I'm really backing uh, for the last couple of years. But Movzar Evluev has definitely been one of those guys that I've been backing. I think uh, he's a solid prospect uh, coming over from the M1 promotion over there in Russia, was a champion over there at 135 pounds. Now he's coming into the UFC as a 145 pounder and he goes out there and he shows that he deserves to be at this weight class. He's going out there taking guys down, doing good damage. And the one thing that I like about his game as well is that he shows an ever-improving striking game. And he does a lot of work over there at Tiger Muay Thai, which is probably one of the bigger gyms when it comes to Muay Thai. uh, And it's definitely showing. He's going out there and getting in work with bantamweight champ Piotr Jan. So that's definitely going to sharpen your game. But as of lately, he has been down at American Top Team in Florida where he's getting in training with a, a huge group of guys that are very, very high level and should give him a lot of good looks. And now I think that has a little bit to do with the whole COVID situation going on and having it uh, a little bit more difficult to go out there and get solid training partners out there in Thailand. So he's bringing the game to him by going down to uh, American Top Team and getting some solid work in there with those guys. But... What should we what we should expect from him is a guy that used to go for takedowns quite often, but as of late we've been seeing him using his handiwork uh, and really piecing these guys up on the feet. Now I feel like uh, Nick Lentz will be the one that's going to be shooting for takedowns out here, and he could be successful with some of them. But I expect Movzar to continue to get back to his feet and really light up um, and really light up uh, Nick Lentz. The issue here is Nick Lentz is very, very durable. The only person to finish him as of late was Charles Oliveira. And if you guys follow UFC very closely, you guys know that Charles Oliveira is on an absolute tear right now, most recently beating uh, Tony Ferguson in very dominant fashion. But uh, Nick Lentz, very, very durable, very tough to get out of there. And I don't think that Movzar is really going to get him out of there. He, was pro- he will probably rack up a ton of significant strikes and actually push this to uh, a decision, and he'll probably get his hand raised via decision. Now we're trying to find guys that are actually going to give us the most points in terms of being more live for getting a finish and I don't think that Movzar is going to get that finish as as much of a skill discrepancy as we see here between the two guys heck you have Movzar Evlov all the way up at 9400 uh, and you got Nick Lenz coming in at 6800 I just don't think that we'll see Movzar truly uh, reach that uh, the, the the score that will allow to justify that 9400 uh, I think he absolutely goes out there and molly wops Nick Lenz don't get me wrong but I think the majority of his uh, strikes and, and damage is going to come from the feet um, he'll probably have to go out there and defend a couple takedowns which might eat up a little bit of clock as well too so that might eat into the amount of time that he should be able to you know rack up some strikes against uh, Lenz however I still have him winning via decision uh, he's a minus 550-ish favorite in terms of betting I'm kind of you know steering away from that as much as i love evloev i think that nick lens could make it a much closer fight um but i do ultimately think that we'll see mozar evloev come out with a decision victory um all right let's continue to move on we got andrew sanchez versus mahmoud muradov and now everybody seems to be all gugu and gaga over andrew sanchez since he came, he's coming off a huge knockout victory over wellington Terman in his last fight not a lot of people were predicting that now Andrew Sanchez is that guy that goes out there and goes for takedowns and he tries to get guys down over and over again. His striking game plan 
more often than not, has been to just kind of throw a couple shots out there and then eventually set up the takedown and get this fight to the ground. However, in his fight against Wang Tintermin, we saw him come out there in a, a weird karate stance where he was bouncing up and down on his toes a lot, moving in and out, and really showing confidence and sitting down on his shots, which is why he was able to get Wellington out there. Now, he was showing a little bit of wildness with that striking style too, right? And now he's going up here against a guy in Mahmoud Muradov, who is very, very slick on the feet. Heck, Floyd Mayweather signed this guy to uh, to a management team. You know, I mean, that's not not often you see Floyd dipping into the MMA world, and I believe it's his only fighter signed to the money team. So, uh, it definitely tells you something about Mahmoud here. Now we're getting Mahmoud around that eighty six hundred range. I think that's a solid spot for him, as I see him going out there and kind of just lighting up Andrew Sanchez on the feet. The one issue with Andrew Sanchez in the past has been that he uh, he slows down in that third round, especially when he comes in with a grapple heavy game plan. And I'm expecting him to do that after a couple minutes of trying to strike against um, Mahmoud Muradov and finally figuring out that, okay, this is probably not going to be the way to go. Um, but I, I do think that Murdov uh, is definitely live to possibly finish this in the third round, rack up a bunch of significant strikes, uh, but uh, probably even one uh, via decision as well too. Um, I, I will have some Mahmoud. I think he's very valuable around that 8,700 range or 8,600 range, um, as I don't think guys around him will probably earn as much Brad Tavares as being one of them. That's somebody I'll touch upon a little bit later in this breakdown. But uh, I do Mac- I do think Mahmoud gets it done. I do think uh, his price tag as well in terms of just betting odds-wise. The last time I checked, it was minus 130, minus 140 range. And I think there's a, a significant amount of value on Muradov there, strictly due to everybody kind of just... Uh, reading too much into Andrew Sanchez's last fight. There's been a ton of times out there where we see guys go out there and not notably uh, being a knockout striker, get a knockout, and then everybody's just like, oh God, he's finally got knockout power. Like the one guy that comes to mind is Tanner Bozer, who similarly rocks a mullet just like uh, Andrew Sanchez. Um, we, we see Tanner Bozer go out there and get a knockout victory over Philippe Linz and, and stops Rafael Pesoa. And then everybody thinks he's going to go out there and knock out Andre Arlovsky. But he goes back to his chip away style and just kind of picking apart Andre Arlovsky. And he even went on to lose that fight. I mean, now with Andrew Sanchez, uh, we need to dial it back a little bit. I think the hype is being baked into this line, which is why we're getting around that uh, plus 110, whereas I think he will end up being around that plus 150 to plus 175 range if he had just grinded out Wellington Terman. So I think people need to kind of steer themselves back a little bit. I think Mahmoud wins this fight. I think he continuously moves forward, lands big shots, racks up the significant strikes, and uh, either gets a third round finish or it gets a uh, decision victory. So I'll go with Mahmoud here. All right, let's keep the train rolling. And then one thing that a lot of people like to look at when you're when you're trying to build a lineup and you're making all these different lineups is the fight to not go to decision. And one of those is definitely Khalil Roundtree versus Marcin Pracnio. Both of these guys are bangers. Uh, we're currently getting Khalil around that 9,300 range uh, and uh, Marcin Pracnio down at 6,900. Uh, 6, now, this could blow up in your face. I wouldn't have too much of Khalil Roundtree if you're one of those guys that likes to make multiple lineups. Personally, I should have started off the show with this. I, I'm I, I'm that guy that likes the, the 50-50s, the head-to-heads, uh, and not making hundreds of lineups. I'd like to go about it maybe to the 15s or the 20s uh, types of lineups. Um, but if you are one of those guys that likes to make those mass uh, lineups, uh, I've... Khalil could absolutely score huge here. I'm expecting him to go out there and get this first round knockout against Marcin. But the issue is, Marcin has knockout power himself too. And we have seen Khalil Roundtree get finished in the first round in in the past. He does have some chin issues. He obviously got finished by Iwan Kutilaba last time around. And then his last loss before that was to Johnny Walker, where he got dusted in that first round. But there's that Eric Anders fight that was stuck in there where everybody's like, okay, we got Tai Leal now. We got a guy that's going out there showing great kickboxing, great Muay Thai. He even moved over to Thailand to try to really refine his striking. And within the first 30 seconds of that fight against Eric Anders, that's exactly what we saw. Coming out with that Muay Thai stance, palms forward, uh, you know, hopping that front leg and then just whipping leg kicks at Eric Anders. Uh, and even though he wasn't able to get the finish there, he did record, I believe it was four or five knockdowns in that fight, which is very, very valuable for sure. Uh, but I think with Pracnio, he could absolutely starch him on the chin and put him out. But it, it works vice versa. Now, I don't want to go super hard on Khalil Roundtree, as I believe a lot of people will. Um just in case Prakneo is the one that eventually gets that knockout instead. It's absolutely possible that Prakneo could crack this guy. He has his own karate type style where he lunges in and out. Uh, the only detriment here is the fact that he's coming off of three knockout losses. The Sam Alvey one, that one you can kind of scoff at. Being like, okay, got knocked out by Sam Alvey. Then he gets knocked out by Magomed on Kalev, but you can't really hang your head too high off of that. As I believe if, uh, you know, this time next year, 
Uncle Ive could absolutely be champion. Uh, he's a very high-level opponent, so losing to that guy, not too bad. And then in his last fight, he gets knocked out by a slow Mike Rodriguez, where, you know, engaging in the clinch a little bit too much and just ate so many elbows and just eventually went to sleep. So the durability of Prakneo is absolutely a concern here, but he does have knockout power, and we need to be sure that we keep that in mind because he could be live to potentially finish Khalil Roundtree. However, you guys want to pick, you guys want to side. I'm going with Khalil Roundtree. And even from a betting perspective, I really like the under one and a half, which is currently lined around that minus 160. If you guys want to do the math here, we're talking about two guys that I believe 22 out of their 30 fights, combined fights, went under a round and a half. So we're talking about roughly 73% of this hit, or historically at a 73% rate, this fight hits. And uh, at the implied odds of uh, minus 160, minus 170, you're talking about a 62% uh, implied odds. So you're getting a little bit of value if you do want to hit that under one and a half, which is something that I'm absolutely doing here. I do expect these guys to both go to war. Uh, I'm expecting Khalil to get his hand raised, but do not count out Pragno in terms of possibly getting that knockout himself too, which is why I think that Khalil being at the price tag he is, yeah, a huge upside. Again, first round knockout, possibly even first 60 seconds, something that the DraftKings world has recently uh, added to their to their repertoire or, or their scoring system, I should say. Why did I say repertoire? I guess I'm trying to show off a little bit with my vocabulary with you guys. But uh, yeah, no, I, I, Khalil definitely has a lot of upside, but he could absolutely get knocked out just the same too. So just be very wary in terms of how much exposure on Khalil you guys have. All right. Keep this thing moving along. A, a fight that we got coming up is Sarah McMahon versus Juliana Pena. This is a fight where we have two grapplers going up against each other. Uh, in terms of salaries, we're talking about 8,200 for McMahon. Slight favorite, uh, Juliana Pena coming in at 8,000. In terms of the betting odds, I believe it's minus 130 for Sarah McMahon, plus 110 for Juliana Pena. Now, I like, I like Sarah McMahon. She brings great credentials to the table. You know, I mean, she's a she's an Olympic level wrestler and we've so, seen it time and time again in her fights. Her issue has always been when she exerts herself too much in those first couple of rounds, she gives up the submission later in the fight. It happened against Caitlin Vera. It happened against Marion Renault. Uh, but in her last fight against Lena Landsberg, we saw her go out there and accrue over 13 and a half minutes of control time, landing a solid amount of strikes in that amount of time as well, too. So if takedowns is what you're looking for, Sarah McMahon is going to give them to you. However, um... She, she's not really a finisher, so don't expect a finisher. Maybe get a decision victory. Um, but Juliana Pena, solid, solid grappler herself too. The only issue is that she's given up a ton of takedowns in the past as well. So I think the takedown is absolutely going to be there for Sarah McMahon. And possible cardio issues from Juliana Pena as well, who last time around was shooting for takedowns so desperately that she got choked out by a striker in Jermaine Durandamy, who had never recorded a, 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 a submission at that point in time. If I'm not mistaken, the odds of that happening were like plus 1,600 all the way up to plus 2,000. Like there was just, nobody would have predicted Jermaine Durandamy to win that fight via decision, but it happened against Juliana Pena. So I think that Sarah McMahon will be the stronger wrestler here. I think she's going to be the one going out there and getting the takedowns and grinding out Sarah Mc, uh, Juliana Pena. However, how much is that really going to score? Like I'm kind of hesitant in terms of how many strikes and significant strikes she'll be able to accrue while controlling and holding down Juliana Pena here, who should be squirming, who has a solid jiu-jitsu background. Personally, I think it's a little bit overrated in terms of what she's able to do off of her back. But I do think that we'll see Sarah McMahon continuously take her down and stay on top. It might even, in her last fight, she only landed three takedowns because she only needed one each round to control her opponent. So I don't know how many points we're eventually going to get off of her. Maybe Juliana Pena works her way back to her feet and Sarah McMahon starts to to get more takedowns and start scoring more that way. But then again, at the, the age of being 40 years old, the potential cardio issues that we've seen historically from her, um, it, it just leads you to question whether she'll even be able to keep that pace up for 15 minutes if Pena continues to get up and up and up. So I like uh, McMahon to win this fight, but there are just too many um, question marks for me to truly go out there and be like, okay, Sarah McMahon should be a staple in your lineups. I do favor her to win this fight, and you might want to throw her in a couple, but uh, this is going to be a low-scoring fight, at least in my opinion. All right, let's move along to Brad Tavares versus Antonio Carlos Jr. We got uh, ACJ coming in at 7,500, Brad Tavares coming in at 8700 um in terms of odds we got around plus 110 for acj we're seeing that line shift as well too because he originally was a plus 135 dog it's coming all the way down to plus 105 and uh people are running the tape and they're starting to figure out why acj should possibly be favored to win this fight uh mainly a jiu-jitsu practitioner goes out there and spams takes down takedowns tries to get you down over and over again and uh has a very good submission game as well uh unfortunately in his last two fights he went up against ian heinish who is a much better scrambler 
Uh, so he made it very tough to really settle on the ground. And then Uriah Hall in a fight that some people even scored for Antonio Carlos Jr. But he did a lot of good things in terms of, uh, you know, maintaining the back position against uh, uh, Uriah Hall. Racked up the control time for sure. Um, you know, when the fight was in the standing realm, though, Uriah Hall did a really good job in terms of just launching his jab out there and really busting up the nose of ACJ, which probably had um, a, a huge effect on his cardio for sure. But in that third round, we see ACJ, the entire third round, hold the back of Uriah Hall, but was not able to really get one much shots off and two wasn't able to complete a submission either. In this fight against Brad Tavares, though, I think he's going to have much more success in terms of getting this fight to the ground. I think he'll be even uh, more live to potentially get a submission victory too, as I believe uh, the only time Brad Tavares has been finished was by Court McGee, which was actually on the Ultimate Fighter. So officially, he's never lost via submission, but if you want to take that Ultimate Fighter exhibition matches into consideration, he did get guillotine choked by Court McGee over 11 years ago though now. So it's been a long, long time. Brad Tavares has definitely grown as a fighter, um, but ACJ is definitely a high-level jiu-jitsu player. So the submission is definitely live. So around that 7,500 range, I'm liking uh, Antonio Carlos Jr. because one, he's going to get takedowns. He's going to get rack up control time. He does a good job in terms of striking while he's in these positions as well to kind of uh, you know add up those points as well too and again he could be live to get a submission victory so that's absolutely a possibility i think he will probably outscore uh the salary that he's currently at brad tavares on the other hand he needs to keep this fight on the feet to really get his strikes going and even if he wins this fight he's not really a, a knockout puncher this fight will more than likely go to a decision if it's in tavares's favor and i'm not sure how many points he'll be able, be able to rack up in that amount of time especially with dealing with the takedown onslaught that Antonio Carlos Jr. brings to the table. So I'm liking ACJ here. I'm liking him as a dog, as a bet, as a DFS uh, guy as well too. And I think he's going to upset a lot of people that were going out there and backing Brad Tavares. All right, let's move right along. We got the... Uh, prelim headliner here between two scorching prospects or one of them used to be a scorching prospect uh i'm not sure why everybody forgot about him but we got arman sarukian who made his ufc debut against islam makhachev and really made a good count of himself as a lot of people were think that makhachev was just going to slice through him like a, a hot knife through butter but arman made it much much more difficult um and then nazar hakprast again uh, uh, the talk of the town this time last year and uh, until up until the point that Drew Dober went out there and knocked him out, I believe that was January of last year, uh, everybody just stopped really giving a crap about him. You know, I mean, he's uh, a minus or sorry, he's a plus 250 dog here to Armand Sarukian. Um, but I think that Nazareth has a lot of upside here. Now, if you go back and watch the tape on Armand, yeah, his fight with Islam Makachev looks great. In the fight against uh, Olivier Obama, the guy goes 2 of 11 on takedowns. And I think that the narrative and the perception out there about Armand is that he's like this Khabib-level type of guy, or a Makachev-level guy, where he just can continuously take you take you down over and over again. However, I think he has a little bit of, a, bit of an issue with his cardio and his gas tank. And I think that's going to show in spades here against a guy, Nazra Hakpras, who's going to make it very difficult for him uh, the longer this fight stays on the feet. Now... His two uh, takedowns that he landed against Olivier Aubin was uh, in the first round. After that, was not able to get the takedown. He did end up in top control in that third round, but that was due to the poor fight IQ from my guy Olivier, uh, who tried taking him down, slipped, and then Armand ends up on top and just pretty much rides out that entire round. Uh, the fight against Davi Hamosh, his only takedown that he landed was in that first round. After that, he went 0 of 3. Luckily for him, slightly better striker than Davy Hamosh, so he was able to go out there and, and pretty much outstrike him. He did get landed on a couple times, and if you get landed on a hack by hack press, it might not turn out as well for you as it did against uh, Davy Hamosh. So I think that uh, uh, hack press being around that, uh, where is he at? Uh, 7,300 range. I think it's going to be, uh, I think he could outscore uh, his salary as well here too. I think he could absolutely pull off the upset against Armand Sarukian. We've seen durability from Sarukian, but I don't know what it's going to look like when he's fighting a guy like Hakprast who throws with that, as much heat as he does. He has solid takedown defense, even though in his UFC debut, he got taken down three times against Marcin Held, but that was a short notice uh, opponent, and Held does a really good job with his jiu-jitsu and dragging these guys to the ground. In that amount of time, he fought Alex Munoz, who's primarily a grappler, primarily a wrestler, gets him down once, pretty much right off the bat in the first round. Hakparas works his way back to his feet pretty much immediately, and then just uh, goes out there and outstrikes him, uh, landing over 102 strikes uh, against uh, Alexander Munoz in that fight. 
great performance from Hackfrost and showing us that he still has that potential of reaching that hot prospect, that full potential that we had for him before he fought uh, Drew Dober. So uh, I think we'll see Hackfrost go out there, evade the takedowns, at least after the first round. He might get taken down in that first, but he does a good job of getting back to his feet. He has great submission defense as well too, especially going three full rounds against Marcin Held without getting tapped. I believe that is correct. I just want to actually clarify that for myself as I do believe he did survive the entire 15 minutes with Marcin on the ground. Uh, yeah, he went to a decision with him. So I don't think that Armand Sarukin has better jiu-jitsu than Held, who's a high-level jiu-jitsu player, as most people know. So I think that uh, that first round might go to Armand. But after that, I think we'll see Nazareth stuff the takedowns. And I think we'll see him rack up the significant strikes and potentially get a finish in the second or third round. So that definitely adds up for some points here, especially when you're talking about an underdog who is priced around that 7,300 range, uh, which I think will be huge here. So I do like Nazrak Hakras to win this fight. Um, Ultimately, I think he wins a decision, but I truly think he has some upside in terms of getting a finish here uh, against a guy in Armand Sukin who shows decent striking. However, uh, going up against a guy in Hakras who gauges his range very well, uh, covers distance very well with his strikes, and packs as much power as he does too, it's going to be some trouble for Armand. So I'm going with Nazra Hakras to win this fight. I'll say decision, but for DFS purposes, I do think that he is live for a second or third round KO. All right, let's go on to the main card now where we got the bell of the ball. Uh, Miss Amanda Hibas going up against Marina Rodriguez. We got uh, Amanda Hibas coming in at 9,200 with Marina Rodriguez coming in at 7,000. In terms of the odds, we got minus 300 for Amanda Hibas and plus 250 for Marina Rodriguez. And I don't think this fight is as easy as most people are making it uh, to be. You know what I mean? Obviously, we've seen the difficulties with Marina Rodriguez in the past in terms of dealing with grapplers, dealing with wrestlers, and uh, having an inability to really stick to her striking um especially in that third round now i think the difference here is that i think amanda hibas doesn't have as good wrestling and takedowns as as a girl like carla esparza who has pretty much made her, her bread off of her wrestling she's really good at getting takedowns from the open uh, in the open cage in the middle of the cage whereas amanda hibas she needs to drag these women down from from that clinch position up against the cage now just go on go on and throw some tape on from uh, marina rodriguez and how she does in the clinch She's very strong in the clinch. Great Muay Thai, great knees up the middle, just batters girls to the body. Her significant strike should be off the chain here in terms of if she's able to keep this fight on the feet. And that's the big question. Because if she does, Amanda Hibas is not going to complete takedowns. Amanda Hibas is not going to pull off a submission. And she's going to look like a fish out of water the longer this fight stays on the feet. So I think that that 9200 for Hibas is a little bit crazy. And I think there's a lot of like popularity kind of baked into this Hibas hype that we're getting. Like, let's just look at it. Like, her last fight, she beats uh, Paige Van Zandt. <sighs> Beating Paige Van Zandt in 2020, especially the way that she did. Sure, she lived up to the minus 700 uh, odds that she was given, but it's just Paige Van Zandt. Then the fight before that, she goes out there and outstrikes Mackenzie Dern. Great. It's just Mackenzie Dern. Mackenzie Dern doesn't really have hands. And then Ronda Marcos, who's kind of just a middle of the pack, kind of a gatekeeper in the division, and she does a good job of just going out there, grinding her out, uh, getting the takedowns, and just doing some good work from on top. This is the first time she's fighting somebody with a legitimate striking background who has a mean streak. I like to call Marina Rodriguez poor woman Ioana Janjacek, as I believe that she could be middle woman Ioana Janjacek if she was able to shore up her takedown defense, but I'm kind of riding with her here to land the damage. Even when she's on her back, she's going out there and landing solid damage off of her back, so the strikes will start to accumulate even from that position. Uh, I do also think that she's very live for a finish here too. I've, uh, I said it on my prop show a little bit earlier that at plus 1150, I think that there's some solid value on Marina Rodriguez to win this fight via KO. Uh, she could absolutely outpoint or, or you know, uh, outreach the uh, the 7,000 mark or 7,000 salary that she's currently at uh, as I believe that she, she is live for a KO. The only time Amanda Hibas has lost is due to KO and it was to a girl named Poliana Vienna who's also in the UFC was primarily a grappler. So both women were just going out there swinging wild bombs at each other and we saw uh, Vienna land the best shot, drop her on her butt and follow up with some ground and pound and get the finish. Now you're going up against a girl in Marina Rodriguez who just throws absolute heat in all of her strikes. How is Amanda Hibas going to gonna react when she's getting bombed on like that right that's kind of my question so i think the odds are absolutely out of whack here i think rodriguez should be closer to that plus 150 range again obviously there are the concerns of the takedowns but i do think she does a good job in those first two rounds to get back to her feet it's usually later in the fight in the third rounds where she's not able to get back to her feet but the ability to get back to her feet on those first two rounds should allow her to accumulate enough damage up against amanda hibas to really make it uncomfortable like hibas looks great on the feet in her in her first couple fights but she did not look that comfortable against Poliana Viana. 
She's obviously made improvements. She's obviously grown in her confidence on the feet with her hands and, and looking great. But when you're out striking girls like Mackenzie Dern, Paige Van Zandt, Randall Marcos, it doesn't really lead me to believe that you're truly a good striker. Now you're going up against a, a really good striker in Marina Rodriguez. So let's see if Amanda Hivas truly passes this test. I'm going with, going with Marina Rodriguez. I think she's a solid play. I, I think she's going to be a sleeper play as well too that a lot of people are probably going to be overlooking. And even as a dog at plus 250, I think she carries a solid amount of value there. So I'm going with Amanda, or sorry, I'm going with Marina Rodriguez. All right, let's keep things moving along. We got Otman Azaitar versus Matt Favola. For Otman, we got 8,800, whereas uh, Matt Favola is coming in at 7,400. And in terms of odds, Otman Azaitar around that minus 155 range. And we got Matt Favola around that plus 130, plus 135 range. Now, the one thing I want to point right off the bat, Matt Favola coming off a fractured foot. And that was only back in September. And he's coming back four months later. I'm not sure how long. I'm no doctor or anything, but I'm not sure how long you really need to come back from a fractured foot. But one thing that he's going to have to worry about here is being on his bicycle. He's going to have to rely on his movement to be sure to get out of the big shots, uh, get out of the way of the big shots of Atman Azatar. Atman Azatar, very promising prospect, has high upside in my opinion, and has ridiculous knockout power. Nine out of his 13 victories have come via first-round knockout. Heck, even in his last fight against Kamal Worthy, he had plus 400 odds to win inside round one. You bet your boy jumped on that. You bet your boy cashed on that as well, too. Now, this time around, the Ozmaker's showing him a little bit more respect, coming in at uh, plus 250 for Azitar to win in round one. But I truly believe it's very, very live here. We've seen Matt Favola finished by Polo Reyes about four fights ago uh, within a minute, got dropped twice, and then finished uh, all in that one minute. And even against Lando Veneta, gets dropped twice as well, too. Luckily for him, the next two fights, not really fighting huge power punchers in Jalen Turner and Luis Pena, so he's able to go to a decision with these guys and pull off the victories there. But he's going to have hell and high water to deal with uh, with Otman Azatar, and if he wants to try to get his wrestling game going, it's going to be very, very difficult. I'm impressed with what I've seen from Otman, even later in fights. There's a fight where he finishes in the third round with a beautiful body kick, lands right on the uh, liver of the guy, and drops him and finishes him there. So I think that the, the finish is always live for Otman here, but I think that it truly comes in that first round. So I do believe he'll fully live up to the 8800 price tag that he's currently at, and I think he should be a, a little bit of a staple in most people's lineups. I know I'm going to have some uh, of him on it, and I do think that he's very, very live to get the finish here against Favola. Even if this fight gets extended past that first round, I think it's going to be very difficult for for Favola. That's a mouthful. <laughs> it's going to be very difficult for Favola to continuously close that distance, land his takedowns, or even try to get some strike off without eating some bombs from Otman Azatar. So I'm going with Otman. I think he gets the first round KO. I think he gets us a bunch of points by getting the finish here. Uh, so that's the, that's the side that I'm going to be going with. Personally, as a bet, I'll also be hitting that round one prop at plus 250 as I think that there's a solid amount of value there as well too. All right, let's keep things moving along. We got Jessica I versus Joanne Calderwood. Um, in terms of pricing, we got Joanne coming in at 8,400 and Jessica I coming in at 7,800. I don't see this truly being that... Uh, you know what we will get some output from both women here i think the likelihood of a finish happening is very very low obviously the the fight go to goes to decision is minus 325 makes absolute sense here um i'd be surprised if one of these women were on the winning lineup it's going to come down to who has the more output more often than not, you're going to get that from Joanne Calderwood. She's, you know, she's more of an eight-limb striker. What i mean by that is like you got your your elbows your punches your your kicks your knees she has all of that um, whereas uh, Just Guy, most of her striking comes from the from the punches, from the combinations, from the boxing combinations. And one thing that I like about Just Guy's game is whenever opponents try to close the distance on her and get their strikes off, most notably the Viviani Araujo fight. If you guys remember Araujo, she just fought recently, yesterday actually, or the day before against Roxanne Modafferi, and had a phenomenal performance. But when Jessica I fought her. Anytime Viviani Arujo closed the distance, we saw Jessica meet her with combinations and just stand her ground and just take whatever shot that Viviani was throwing at her, but giving them back to her as well too. Now, if we're talking about points here, I feel like Joanne might land the more significant strike. So in terms of DFS, you might want to go her way. But this fight is just right down the middle. Like, I truly think that we're going to get a split decision here. I think it's going to go to the cards and I could see the, uh, the, the judges giving it to either girl here. We're going to see the more effective strikes coming from Jessica and those combinations, but we're going to see the more volume of strikes coming from Joanne Calderwood. 
Both girls, I'm not going to bother with too much here. Even in terms of betting, I think it's just too close of a fight. Like the, if only the only spot that you could probably like here, but again, it's hella chalky, is the over two and a half, which is like minus three sixty. It's too much, too much, too much chalk to be paying out here. But uh, yeah, I don't think either woman gets a finisher. I don't think we get a high score from either one here either. Uh, but uh, yeah, if you want to go with one side and who's going to get the more output, it will probably be Joanne Calderwood. But uh, yeah, I'm taking Jessica Idowin. I think she eventually gets her hand raised for the more damaging blows. But uh, yeah, in terms of points, it's, it's going to be very, very tough to pick either girl here. Again, volume historically comes from Joanne Calderwood. Uh, but Jessica is a very, very tough opponent too. All right, that brings us right to our Coleman event. We got Mr. Bellator himself, Michael Chandler, finally making his UFC debut. If you guys remember, he was supposed to be the, the alternate or the step-in if anything had happened to Habib Nurmagomedov and Justin Gaethje back in October at UFC 254. He weighs in, nothing happens, and luckily for him, he just gets to kick back, have a beer, and watch that fight. Now he is finally making his debut, and he's coming in against a very tough Dan Hooker who himself has been on the precipice of getting a title shot but just comes up so, so short. Most notably, he just had a main event fight against Dustin Poirier where they went a full five rounds and they just had a crazy back and forth war. Both guys hurting each other. Both guys dropping each other. Both guys having major, major amounts of success. But ultimately, Dustin Poirier comes out, pours it on a little bit later in the fights, winning those rounds four and round five and taking it away from Dan Hooker. Um, but in terms of salaries, we're looking at Dan Hooker coming in around 8500 Michael Chandler around 7700 now, Michael Chandler could be live for a finisher. Dan Hooker has taken massive amounts of damage, but the only person to finish him via strikes as of late was Edson Barboza, who, technically speaking, had him completely outmatched on the feet. If you guys are, who know who Edson Barboza is, probably one of the most nastiest Muay Thai games that we have in the UFC, and he went out there through everything at Dan Hooker, and eventually took a body shot to take him out late in that third round, but... Uh, I truly think that the, the durability of Hooker will continue to hold up, especially here against Michael Chandler. Now, Michael Chandler, primarily a wrestler, has some bombs with his with his with his punches too. But but the thing is he doesn't really set them up well. Like he has a jab here and there, but most of his shots, I like to call these guys like wrestling strikers. And what I mean by that is these guys close the distance very well, like they blitz very well, but most of their shots come in very wide. Like they're winging hooks, overhand rights, overhand lefts, whatever it is, and they don't really have much technique that goes into them. But who needs technique when you got a, a bunch of power behind that too, right? So we saw him go out there and finish Ben Henderson last time around. Ben Henderson, former UFC champion, former Bellator champion as well, if I'm not mistaken. And, uh, but in 2020, truly not the fighter that he used to be. The fight before that goes out there and knocks out a grappler in Sydney Outlaw who doesn't really have much on the feet. And then the fight before that, he goes out there and gets knocked out by now champ champ Patricio Pitbull Fajera. So... I think it's going to be very difficult for uh, Michael Chandler to close that distance and go out there and continuously get takedowns against Dan Hooker, who also has a very underrated uh, jiu-jitsu game. He has a very nasty choke, has a couple guillotine chokes on his record in the UFC, but in terms of the size disadvantage, it's going to be massive. we got a 4-inch height advantage for Dan Hooker, and also I believe a 6-inch reach advantage, which is going to be massively in, in play here. I also like to add in the fact that Dan Hooker comes from a very good camp and a very good head coach in Eugene Behrman and that name must ring true to you guys if you guys closely follow Israel Adesanya because these guys do train together um Daniel Hooker obviously not at the level of an Israel Adesanya but definitely has potential to eventually reach that if he's able to shore up his game a little bit more he shows off a nasty calf kick as, as well which is kind of I'd be surprised if he doesn't use that in this fight against Chandler he really wants to take the power off the lead leg of Michael Chandler and really make it difficult for him to close that distance to one land his power shots and two get his wrestling going speaking of wrestling out of the 21 takedown attempts that people have had on Dan Hooker since he moved up to to uh, lightweight over five years ago only two of them have been successful so he stuffed 19 out of 21 takedowns in his last however many fights uh, since 2016 uh, when he had changed from 145 pounds to 155 pounds. So I do like Dan Hooker here and I do think that he's very live for a knock knockout as well. I think uh, in that uh, 8,500 range, he could bring some good value here as he should have the the better of the striking exchanges um, and again, could be very, very live for, for either a knockout or a submission. If Michael Chandler gets a little bit too desperate with his takedowns, he will absolutely leave his chin out there and I think that Dan Hooker could absolutely take advantage of that too. And it's not going to be easy to keep Dan Hooker down either as he's very active off of his back, uh, lands well off of his back too, but in terms of throwing up submission attempts, it could be very tricky for Michael Chandler to truly settle on top there. 
So um, we've seen Michael Chandler finished by P- Patricio. Uh, even in the fight before that against Brent Primus, he won that he won that fight via decision. In that first round, he drops Brent Primus and then rides out the rest of the round on top control. In the second round, he gets dropped by check left hook by uh, Brent Primus, and after that, he regains his wits and eventually just grinds out Brent Primus for the the remainder of that fight. The check left hook is definitely a, a tool that Dan Hooker has used in plenty of his fights in the past, and I wouldn't be surprised if that ends up being the the, the ultimate swing here for uh, Dan Hooker to get the win. Another big weapon that he has is his knee up the middle, especially given his 4-inch height advantage. It could definitely come into play here, especially, again, if Michael Chandler goes out there and starts shooting desperate or desperation takedowns. Um, I love Dan Hooker in this spot. I think he's very live for a KO. I think he's very live for a finish. And I think his, his significant strike numbers are definitely going to go off the charts here as well. Uh, keeping Michael Chandler at bay, using his kicks, using his range, using his jab, he's going to make it very, very difficult. And uh, of course, you can leave it to Eugene Behrman to drop a perfect game plan to go out and beat a guy like Michael Chandler, who I, mind you, is also 34, will be 35 this year. So unfortunately for him, he's coming into the UFC a little bit too late and he's left a little bit too much on the table over there in Bellator for him to truly show up here in uh, in the UFC world and go up against a guy like Dan Hooker. So I'm going with Dan Hooker. I think he's left for a finish, maybe first or second round. Uh, but I think he is a solid spot uh, for that 8,500 range. And even as a, as a bet too, I believe he's around that minus 140, minus 150 range. I think he holds some solid value there as well. One thing I will note, the closer that this fight gets, we might see some money come in on Michael Chandler given the amount of hype that's being thrown his way and everything that everybody knows about him from the Bellator days. So uh, if you want to wait on actually betting Dan Hooker, you might be able to get a better line on him. But even at 8,500 here in the DFS world, um, I think he has some solid value. All right, let's get to it. We got the main event now. Dustin Poirier versus Conor McGregor. This is a rematch from a fight that took place at UFC 178. I believe it's over eight years ago now since that fight had taken place. And that was a fight where Conor McGregor pretty much blew up on the scene. He was able to go out there, knock out Dustin Poirier relatively quickly, and uh, start skyrocketing to that stardom that we know uh, that he's at currently. You know, went on to go beat Dennis Seaver, earns the title shot, uh, fights uh, Chad Mendes, gets the interim title, fights Jose Aldo, knocks him out, moves up in weight class, loses to Nate Diaz, but gets that fight back, and then eventually goes on to challenge Eddie Alvarez, becoming champ champ. Then he goes on and fights, uh, I believe that was uh, when he went on to fight Floyd Mayweather. Just insanity how much Conor McGregor's, uh, you know, uh, popularity has blown up. Easily the most popular fighter in UFC history, bar none. Nobody has taken it to this level. Now he's coming in against Dustin Poirier, who has had a multiple amount of fights in that amount of time too, has made massive improvements since the Dustin Poirier that we saw against Conor McGregor way back then. Um, Had a couple main events, uh, even fought for the title, won the interim title against Max Holloway and... If you guys follow the sport as closely as I do, you saw how good Max Holloway did last time around uh, against Calvin Cater just last weekend. Um, but Dustin Poirier was able to go out there and just throw and land over and over again on Max Holloway. I must have just scored so highly on the on the DraftKings world. Uh, won that fight via decision, but just, I believe, landed over 250 strikes that night against Max Holloway, who, again, very hittable. Here against Conor McGregor, though, I think McGregor is a little bit more elusive. Actually, not just a little bit, way more elusive than uh, the fighters that Dustin Poirier has recently be fighting, been fighting. Even the Dan Hooker fight, we saw Dustin Poirier go out there and just land a significant amount of strikes on uh, Dan Hooker. I feel like it's going to be a little bit harder for him to land the shots here on Conor McGregor, who does a very good job of maintaining his distance, using his lead hand kind of kind of just to paw out and just feel out the range and the distance, and then eventually land that Celtic cross of his on the chin of most of his opponents who just don't survive it. Like, more often than not, guys just do not survive that strike. Um, and I don't think, unfortunately, here for Dustin Poirier, I don't think that Poirier is going to be able to... Um, to survive that either so we got 9100 on uh on conor mcgregor he averages about 100.2 uh fantasy points per uh per matchup as well uh dustin poirier coming in at 7100 averaging about 84 but the difference here is the fact that i don't think this fight will go that long i think conor mcgregor is absolutely live for a first or second round finish and i don't think any of the improvements that either fighter has made will make it much different than the first fight like again that fight took place at 145 pounds this is not 155 pounds both fighters have definitely put on some muscle put on some weight and have uh you know looked much better but connor just his precision his accuracy and his power is just like none other the only time we've seen dustin poirier put out since that connor mcgregor fight was against michael johnson who himself is a great puncher and an absolutely flatlined dustin poirier but we haven't seen poirier get knocked out in that amount of time and that leads people to believe okay 
Poirier is not as uh, chinny as he used to be, but that doesn't matter when you're fighting a guy like Connor. You know what I mean? I I went into this fight trying to think, okay, I got to find a way to 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 find a take that lets me play Dustin Poirier, especially at that plus two fifty range that he's currently at. But the only way I really see it is if this fight reaches the third, fourth, and fifth rounds. That's where Poirier really comes on. In his last two fights that went five rounds, he um he racked up. Uh, he won rounds four and round five on all six judges' scorecards. He's a round winner when it comes late to the fights. Whereas Conor McGregor, we saw him once in the fifth round against Nate Diaz, and he lost that round. He won the fourth round. I'll give that to him. But that was more so just pot-shotting Nate, kind of sticking on the outside. Uh, and it looked like his gas tank was kind of sort of failing him. Obviously, gives up that fifth round. And if you guys watch that fifth round back, you see him looking up at the clock so often because he just wants out of there. His gas tank cannot hold up. And if he reaches the fourth and fifth rounds here against Dustin Poirier, it gets very, very iffy. And uh, unfortunately, though, I just don't see it happening. I don't see it reaching that far. I think we see Connor go out there and ice this guy, probably first or second round. Um... Obviously, that's going to score huge. And unfortunately, like pretty much everybody that submits a DraftKings lineup is going to have Conor McGregor on the cards. So you want to get a little bit crafty with it and find these other guys or even find some of these underdogs that can make your lineup a lot more valuable than people that are just putting Conor on it just to put him on it. I mean, so Conor will obviously be a very popular play, but I do think he lives up to his 9,100 price tag. And uh, I, I think he delivers that first round knockout. So how can you not have Conor on your lineup, uh, especially when you know that you're going to get those points for that uh, first round knockout? First or second round. I'm definitely going to say, I won't say Poirier is absolutely going to get starts there, but I do think that uh, McGregor lights him up and, and, and gets that gets that knockout. Again, I'm trying to find the angle. I just can't find it. The only way I see Poirier winning is if this gets into the third round and later because I don't think that McGregor's power will transfer that far and I think that we'll see Poirier have a great game plan in terms of uh, you know really messing with Connor and uh, making it more difficult for him to get that knockout blow. But again, don't see it happening. It's going to end in the first round. We're going to see Connor get his hand raised and get that first round knockout. So, yeah, I like Connor there. Uh, again, straight betting wise, minus three ten, a little bit too high for me. I think it's going to get much worse as the fight uh, progresses and gets closer as well. So, um, I'd be, uh, you know, I, I wouldn't be surprised to see Connor up in the minus three fifty range once the fight actually kicks off. Um, but uh, at that ninety one hundred, I think he's a, a solid play there, as I do think he will get the first round knockout. All right, that's the card. Now let me give you guys my my lock of the night, my dog of the night, fate of the night, and my sneaky play of the night. I might want to tinker with that uh, with that title still, but I, I like that title. If you guys have suggestions for it, please drop some in the in the comment section below. And before I do get to that, I do want to remind you guys this is my first foray in the DFS world. Yeah, I mean I have been playing DFS, but I really want to take it seriously in 2021. I know the ins and outs, and uh, the one thing that I'm really curious to know though from the viewers is the spots that you guys are looking most forward to. Like it's going to be great to give you guys a lock of the night it's going to be great to give you a dog of the night it's going to be a great to give you a fate of the night and then obviously a sneaky play of the night uh, but are there any other categories that you guys would like me to tackle because i'd be more than happy to do that for you all right let's get into this so i got lock of the night play i got connor it's tough not to you know what i mean i feel like he has the highest upside in terms of uh, landing and and getting that first round knockout i truly believe he should be a staple in most people's lineups i just don't see how this fight gets into that third fourth and fifth round Connor first round knockout definitely lock of the night play for me here uh, especially for DFS next up dog of the night I talked about it earlier I like my guy Antonio Carlos Jr. who should go out there and get uh, takedown after takedown rack up a bunch of control time rack up some some strikes and significant strikes and could possibly be live for a submission as well too so at that seven what is he at 7500 range whew, I think he has an immense amount of value and I think he's absolutely going to outscore that price tag of his his Next up, we got a fade of the night. And my fade of the night is going to be Armand Sarukian. I don't think he's going to be able to complete as many takedowns as people are thinking he is. And then the longer this fight stays on the feet, I think it's going to be harder and harder for him to truly get uh, get uh, hack press down and even to arrive. I truly think that hack press is very live for a knockout here too. So uh, even if you want to throw a hack press in there as a dog of the night, I think he definitely deserves that. Uh, he's in that 70, 7,300 range. So I think that's a solid spot for him. So my fade of the night is going to be Armand Sarukian he might be able to land uh, you know that uh, takedown or two in the first round but then the longer this fight stays on the feet I think it's it's going to get harder and harder for him to one get significant strikes off or even strikes to begin with and two the control time which is what you kind of look for when you when you have a, a takedown artist like Armand it's not going to be there in the later rounds so I think that uh, he will definitely be a fate of the night from a year and then sneaky play of the night 
is going to be Marina Rodriguez. Now, I'm not telling you to go out there and fucking, you know, 60%, 70% Marina Rodriguez here, but I do think that she could be very, very sneaky and potentially get a knockout too, as I believe that Amanda Hibas truly isn't the striker that we think she is since she went out there and, you know, outstruck Marina Rodriguez, or sorry, um, Mackenzie Dern and uh, Ronda Marcos and, and Paige Van Zandt, obviously submitting Paige Van Zandt uh, in that fight as well too. But uh, yeah, I think it's going to be a very difficult task for uh, Hibas, especially if she's not able to get that sub. Um, Again, Rodriguez might spend a little bit of time on her back, but she will be able to rack up a little bit of strikes and significant strikes off of her back too, as I think she'll be able to remain active there. Uh, but her true damage will come on the feet. She will be able to rack up some significant strikes. And I think she's a very, very sneaky play. Like she's only, what is, what is she at? She's at 7,000. You know I mean? So if you guys are looking for somebody in that, that lower range, uh, that's definitely who you should be looking at. All right. The last thing before I get out of here, we'll do a uh, favorite. Actually, I got two more things before I wrap this episode up. Uh, my, my favorite plays in each range. So in the 6,000s, we only got two guys. We got Nick Lentz and we got Marcin Pracnio. I lean the Pracnio side a little bit more as I believe that he has the potential to score more than Nick Lentz, especially if he gets that first round knockout. Um, obviously, the narrative is that Khalil is going to go out there and dust him. But again, Khalil has a very shaky chin of his own. So do not be surprised if Khalil gets knocked out himself. And Pracnio will definitely live up to that uh, 6,900 range that he's currently at. Uh, yeah, 6,900. He could absolutely get a first-round knockout, so don't sleep on him too much. In the 7,000s, I like Antonio Carlos Jr. I think he'll continuously get takedowns against Brad Tavares, land some uh, control time, land some good significant strikes, and definitely uh, very live for a submission victory as well. So I would take some ACJ. He's my favorite play in the 7,000 range. In the 8,000 range, my favorite play is going to be Otman Azatar, who's 8,800, but I truly think he's going to be very live for a first-round knockout. I think he goes out there and steamrolls the steamroller in that first round and gets him out of there pretty quickly. And then in the 9,000 range, um, in the 9,000 range, we got four guys. We got Amanda Hibas, who I've already told you, I think sneaky play is Marina Rodriguez. Uh, Khalil Rantri, who could absolutely get that first-round knockout, but he could get knocked out himself too. And then Movzar Evlov, who I believe will go to a decision, may not get as much points as these guys that are getting those first-round KOs, uh, which is why my 9,000's favorite play is easily Conor McGregor at 9,100. I think he starts uh, McGregor, or sorry, uh, Dustin Poirier in that first round and gets his hand raised early, racks up some points for us, and gets it done. There it is. I hope my first foray into the DFS world was great for you guys. Hope you guys learned something. Hope I was able to educate you guys to uh, well equip you guys for the fights that are coming up this weekend. Uh, again, I'm this. This is the first episode. So if you guys want any other angles or anything else that you feel as though I should add to the show, I'm more than welcome or more than welcoming of any advice and tips. I would love to make the show the the go-to show for you guys in the DFS world, especially for MMA. And uh, what better channel to do it for than my guy Salvetri, right? The guy's an absolute beast in these other sports and uh, he's bringing a beast in for the MMA world and I'm hoping to win you guys some cash and take down some of these uh, tournaments and these other head-to-head matchups that you guys coming up. All right, I teased it at the beginning when we did our ad read for Monkey Knife Fight. So I'll give you guys a Monkey Knife Fight uh, spot right here. Uh, two spots that I'm really looking at. Uh, Opman Azatar to land less than 42.5 significant strikes. I'm saying less, as I believe he's going to be able to get Matt Favola out of there in the first round and won't need the other 30 other strikes that uh, Monkey Knife Fight thinks that he needs. So I'm going Otman Azatar, less than 42.5 significant strikes. And I'm going also with Conor McGregor, less than 57.5 significant strikes. Again, I think he knocks out Poirier nice and early, uh, and I don't think he needs many strikes to get it done. So I'm going with Conor McGregor, less than 57.5 significant strikes, and Otman Azatar, less than 42.5 significant strikes. So check out Monkey Knife Fight promo code UFC50. The link is in the description below. Check it out. They 100% match you all the way up to 50 bucks. What more could you want? All right. I had a ton of fun doing this. This was great. Yeah. Shout out to everybody watching the show. Good luck on your bets this weekend. Uh, again, if you want to check out your betting stuff, uh, hit up my channel, MMALOTN on YouTube. Uh... My my main focus is betting, but I've been bringing in the DFS world into this and uh, definitely taking it way more seriously in 2021. And I hope to reward you guys with some winning information and some winning lineups. So let's get it done. Once again, shout out to my guy, Sal Vetri, for bringing me on. Good luck on your fights this weekend. Good luck on your bets this weekend. And let's make some money, people. See you guys next week.